Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I saw the chandelier come down at Palenka Park. I saw the first and last This Day Forward shows. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back on a Monday to help you get your week started right. Yeah, dude. This is it, it, this has now become such a cool part of my routine. There's been times where we get on, like, Keith and I were just talking before this, where, like, we literally, like, all day go, like, fuck, I got to do the podcast tonight still, too. God <laughs> damn it. Today was my first day back at work in 10 days because we had off for Thanksgiving break, right? I was so excited all day. I'm like, fuck, we get to do the podcast tonight. What a break from this monotony of fucking work. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because Mondays I take it easy. I do my work. I do light studying. You know, I'm like easing into the week. So today I took it real easy. I didn't even shower. And I don't even think I brushed my teeth. Wow, I'm a mess. So, <laughs> but I was looking forward to this. I'm, I wasn't anxious. I didn't think about it too much. I just did it. Uh, we're going to get banned. This is going to be like, worst show ever. They're unprepared. <laughs> Keith didn't shower. Tommy's no, Tommy actually wants to do it. This is the worst one. <laughs> they want us in bad moods, I guess. <laughs> so I have, I have a good subject for us for this first segment. Are you ready? What do you got? Now, in the group text, there was a discussion, best PA hardcore bands. So are you ready? We're going we're gonna to do this. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I, I will let everybody know I am not part of this group text. This group text is like, how old, Keith? Ten years? Like, uh, ridiculously. Yeah, nine, nine or ten years. Yeah, yeah, it's like ridiculously old. So, yeah. Um, all right, go. Let, let's do scene bands. You okay. know what I mean? To, to make it easier. Okay. I, it w- I would be hard. It would be hard for me to think of five hardcore bands, even from Pennsylvania. So yeah, just you, you can do like hardcore metalcore, whatever. Okay. I got my list. Are you ready for this? Go. All right, here we go. Number one, Ink and Dagger. Yes, I agree with by you. far. I, I think they are a great band. Definitely not one of my favorites, but they are definitely in my top five. 
And they're legendary. I mean, the stories and the antics, and it, it's like a legend at this point. Oh, yeah. And like the, yeah, no, <laughs> just that one part from that botch interview when they're like, <laughs> remember, he's like, yeah, they, they drink blood. They went to like a place in Philly to get blood. I guess it's like an East Coast thing. <laughs> like, what? what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I know. That's so funny. And it just seems like something like someone from Philly would say. So it makes it that much funnier. Yeah, bro. You don't know that place next to D'Alessandro's? fucking blood by the fucking bucket bro <laughs> <laughs> number two all else failed yeah i mean come on that's where i was going all else failed was is definitely one of my that's my number one band to see live oh yeah for sure yeah uh number three turmoil yeah so turmoil was my first choice turmoil was the first like heavy 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 band that i got into that i was like wow this is an entire style of music I didn't really know. Yeah, awesome shows, awesome records. The Process Of is one of the best hardcore records, one of the most overlooked hardcore records. Just an incredible band all around. Yeah. And I I saw them at This Is Hardcore in 2014, but same old story. I was high. Like, I didn't feel like being there because I was there all day. And I don't know, it was just getting very rowdy during the set. So I was like, eh. I think I'm going to go now. I watched them. <laughs> and, and I'm an idiot. I should have stayed because Converge headlined. Stephen Brodsky was on guitar with them. And I think they played The Saddest Day. Really? And I left. You see, you see how damaging drugs are? I still, I, I've seen Converge a handful of times. I still have never seen them play Locust Rain live. Because in my head, I'm thinking if I ever hear them play that, I might like lose my mind. Like I, I really would. Pro- I, I would punch people like for sure. Yeah, I saw it once when that split came out. They had this really awesome drummer from Virginia. So it was the best converged set I've ever seen. They were playing Caring and Killing stuff, Petitioning stuff, When Forever Comes Crashing. They were playing songs from that split. And then that drummer left shortly after he joined or was kicked out. I don't know which one. And I don't think they ever played those songs again. That's my favorite riff of all. Yeah. Of all. Well, uh, well, hold on a second. We got to go. Oh yeah, yeah. Go, the, go to the rest of the list. Yeah. I'm sorry. Number four, Zayo. Yeah. I mean, come on. Their their legacy is unfuckwithable. I think my thing is is that uh, that was the f- the first time I heard a band that I went. This is just, it's like, it was, that was pure, it sounded like metal to me, like when I heard it, because the first time I ever, I had not heard um, all, I didn't hear the first, what is it, All Else Failed, right, the the first yes. album, I didn't know, yes. I didn't, that missed me completely, the first thing I heard was Where Blood and Fire Brings Rest, and as, if you are a fan of this show, you know that that record comes up a lot, people oh, yeah. bring that record up because I think the first time I ever heard the opening to Ravage Ritual, that vocal part in the beginning is just so over the top and brutal. It's just like, holy shit. I would that t- is by far one of the defining records of second wave metalcore. Funny story about that song. Uh, we made a playlist to like come out to on the field when we played lacrosse. And that was like our come out to song for, <laughs> for one, for one game. And my coach was like, when we got back, when we got to the field, he was like, you're never fucking playing that again. 
like immediately <laughs> he was like we played messiah college and it's like a, a it's like a born again christian school and he's like you guys came out with this shit he's like what are you trying to make people upset get the fuck out of here it's like oh but it's God. religious music I, I, at the time it really was i mean they were i think blood and fire was fairly well you know this it was at least very welcomed in religious communities oh for sure didn't you explain that to your coach no you know he didn't give a shit <laughs> He could care less. We fucking probably lost that game 31 to 1 anyways. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> All right. Number five. Yes. Disciple AD. Okay. This is where I'm going to – I don't know them really well. All right. It's it's eerie hardcore. Okay. So just saying eerie hardcore, you can kind of imagine how it sounds. I know Brothers Keeper. I know – Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's like basic tough guy hardcore, but it's super well done, and I love it. Check out um, – no blood, no altar. Now, no blood, no altar. Okay. Yeah, it's it's an EP of theirs. It's no blood, no altar. Now, it's great. I'll have to check it out because I mean that's one of those bands. I've seen that logo. I mean, like you know, I follow stuff on Instagram and I see a lot of people that like sh- collect shirts and records and stuff like that. And that's one of those ones I see often, and I just go, eh, I don't know that band. Oh, and uh, let me interrupt myself. No, I, I have to get into the habit of announcing the guest in the beginning of the show. Yes, and uh, I'm not doing it. So tonight, we're going to have Casey Iodine of Iodine Records. And Iodine Records was a great label from the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, He's worked with Garrison and Brand New and a bunch of other bands. And he is restarting the label. So we're going to talk to him, and he's going to have a lot of great stories. I, I can't wait to ask like about like the uh just the finances that go behind it. Like I I always think about like records, like you know, you go into a record store, right? And there's literally tens of thousands of records. In my head, I'm going like, if I paid for something to get pressed and people didn't buy it, I would fucking lose my mind. Like it's be- expensive. It's, yeah, because it's expensive as shit. Could you imagine? So I, well, I'll tell this story when the he comes on, but I worked with a guy that ran a record label part-time, and I remember him saying that he lost a good chunk of money one time on a band uh, because the record didn't sell. And I'm like, well, where are the records? He's like, in my storage space. And I was like, <laughs> really? He's like, yeah. He's like, it's fucking like eight to 10 feet of my fucking storage space is literally like another 3,500 copies of this fucking LP. So what are your top five bands? Pennsylvania bands. Well, Zay, uh, I all else failed for sure. Yes. Um, and I've had some time to think about this. So yeah, since, I, this since is, yesterday. So, so uh, all else failed. Yes. Turmoil. Yes. Zayo. Yes. I I, I know I am very uh, kind of biased when it comes to this, but things that have made that I still consistently can listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, a life once lost. Yes, that's a great choice, and I, I purposefully, I purposefully left off friend bands. Okay, because well, all else failed. I'm friends with, but I listened to them before I was friends with them. Yeah, so you know, like there's a life once lost, this day forward, so many amazing bands from our area. Hence the podcast. But that's just my approach. You, you tell me your list. So yeah, I because I still put on ecstatic trance and listen yes. to it that yeah. is one of those records that honestly when it first came out i was like oh, i don't get this like i didn't i didn't understand it at first and i kind of 
pushed it to the side and would still, if I listened to anything, I would go back to a great artist yeah. and just listen to that. Um, or sometimes like, you know, Hunter, I would go back and listen to that every once in a while. But um, <laughs> that that's one of those records that I, 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 I think I had it on my iPod and I, I was just playing like, sh- like, you know, shuffling through stuff or I had it on a playlist and I listened to one of the songs and I was like, you know what? Like, it's weird because like they cut, you know, cause it's basically one long song. Like they, yeah. they cut really weird. Like when you listen yeah. to one song. So I was like, let me just put this on while I'm doing work one day. Uh, and I was out in the garage, like, you know, I like building a bench or something like that. And I was like, I was so floored by how well put together that record is. It's just so smart. And it's just, it's, it's, it seems simplistic at first. The drums are very just four, four, just keep time. Um, but there's parts where it really there's a lot of layers to it. And if you're really closely listening, and I wasn't even really closely listening at that time, but I remember there's a part in one of the songs where the guitar part kind of fades out and the organ starts to fade in. And I'm like, holy shit, this is really, really, really well done. Like it's just very smart. Um, it is. I I I lived with Doug yeah. while that record was being written, and I heard him write the entire thing. And then hearing that translate to those live shows where they did a residency, a Kung Fu necktie and debuted that stuff was amazing. It's a great record. And then uh, you got one spot left. Now take your time here. This is it. uh, Does it have to be all timers at things I just listen to now and I really appreciate now? You can put in one of those. One step closer. Yes, one step closer. Yes. I I considered them. They're an honor. They are an honorable mention on my list. That band is going places, man. Wilkesboro kids. I went to college in Wilkesboro. I I love the people from that area. And then the first time I really listened to that record, I was like, I was kind of just taken back. Like, wow, this is. I haven't heard hardcore like this in a while with lyrics that I wanted to know what they were saying. Like yeah. with parts that like cool sing along parts. And it it, it kind of rides the line between like that regular, like everyday kind of chugga, not chugga chugga hardcore, but like melodic hardcore. Yes. Um, and like old school kind of stuff that I, I have an affinity for, but I don't love. And it kind of makes me start to really like it. <laughs> like there was a lot. Yeah, of- they're, they're really young kids that sound genuinely old school and it doesn't come off as contrived or put on in any way, which is so hard to do. Cause you know, like a straight edge hardcore band will come out and it's like, you know, it's like, they're just checking the boxes. Like here's the design, here's the sound here. And it's like, Oh, this again, but one step closer sounds like classic bands like turning point and all that melodic good shit. But, and they completely fresh also. And they have one of my favorite things I've ever seen a hardcore band do. I am a huge fan of polo. I love polo clothes. I it, it's it's a fucking thing that I've just had since high school and they put out uh like one of the old school polo like rugby shirts like full like full sleeves with the polo if you get you guys are familiar with polo's designs they have the horse one but like the teddy bear and yeah. it it just had one step closer and it said Wilkes-Barre on the back and I was like that's fucking amazing. And then I looked at it and it was like ninety five dollars. I was like, never mind. Ninety five dollars. I think it was like eighty five or ninety five dollars. It was. Let's just put it this way. When how Dis- is it that much? 
because it's like custom made. It's like the, the stuff that they had on it was like all embroidered. Um, and I think what they actually did, I don't know for sure. I think they bought real polo shirts or like real nice rugby shirts and had them printed on or had them embroidered on those. So wow. it was a soup. Like it looks super high quality. Um, and I'm not one to like, like when those disembodied sweatshirts came out, remember? Um, yes. You know, it, like I, it, I, I threw $55 at them. Get, like send it to me. Like, <laughs> like get, I, I'll, I'll buy it. It's a champion sweatshirt and it's got disembodied logos on. It. I'm fucking into it. Like do it now. Um, it's so good. But like, for some reason I saw that and I was like, I love this. But in my head, I'm going like one, my wife would fucking flip her lid. Like we have three kids and I'm going to be like, you spent almost a hundred dollars on a hardcore shirt. She'd be like, you're an idiot. First of all, <laughs> you're not from Wilkes-Barre. Why are you wearing like, she would just, there would be a whole litany of things that she would come with to be like, why would you buy that? And then, you know, a month later, I'd be on like hardcore merch swap being like, does anybody want this? It's an extra large. <laughs> like, yeah, like, we know you do like to buy things just to sell them, which seems crazy to me. But hey, I who am I to judge? Everyone does their own thing. Now, <laughs> we are going to talk to Casey. Yes. Oh, and before I before we jump, send us your top five Pennsylvania bands. Let's do t- top. Uh, let's keep it in the scene. You know, yeah. I don't want to hear like Hall and Oates. I like Hall and Oates, but we're we're talking about the scene here. So send us your top five scene bands under the umbrella of hardcore. We'll read your lists on the air. All right. So here's Casey. All right, folks. Now we're here with Casey Iodine. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how you doing? Doing good, you know, just getting through uh, this very odd time that we're all living in. And, um, you know, just uh, I've had some extra free time on my hands. And so I decided to, uh, you know, start the label back up as a fun little side project. That's awesome. So tell us, what is that going to look like? Are you going to be reissuing stuff, putting out vinyl? What's it going to be? So, you know, now that I'm in uh, 40 something years old, um, you know, living a, a more uh, organized life. You know, the, the label is really going to be more of a hobby. The goal is to just kind of reissue and, uh, get some stuff out there, you know, rare, uh, unreleased or reissue, um, some older records from the mid to late nineties and early two thousands. I won't be working with any new or active bands. In fact, any new or active bands that are looking for a label, I'm probably the last person they want to deal with just because, <laughs> I won't be able to give any attention to anything. So everything that we're going to do is going to be limited to, you know, 500 to a thousand records. It's all going to be bands that broke up over 10 plus years ago. Um, you know, just to get some records out there that, that people want. I was looking at the roster. I mean, there's a lot of great bands on there. You got Garrison, you got brand new. There's the band There Were Wires, who I actually communicated with through the Northeast Scene site before. I mean, it's a it's a good it's a good collection of music. Yeah, you know, I, I was really fortunate to work with a lot of bands that, uh, you know, ended up being fairly influential and, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say genre definers. It's a little too uh, uh, big, but. <laughs> just you know it kind of you know they were unique in their own way that they kind of had some uh you know long-term staying power you know even a band like brand new when i first started working with them 
I had no idea that they were going to grow into the powerhouse that they were. Um, you know, they were a bunch of high school kids, you know, just looking to get a, a few gigs booked. Um, and, uh, I didn't even like them when I first started working with them. To be honest. <laughs> um, so what prompt Casey, what prompted you to restart the label? So it's actually a funny story. Uh, over the years, a lot of other labels have reached out to me, uh, newer labels, some older labels, and a lot of people were interested in reissuing records that I produced. Oh. And, uh, I'm a little bit of a control freak, uh, and the idea of another label releasing something that I poured my, you know, blood, sweat and tears into, uh, it just, it, it just irked me in a way that I was like, now nah, I, I have to have complete control over this. I need to do this. And so, uh, you know, a few of the bands that had uh, potential projects kind of on the, uh, you know, on the stove, I, I jumped in and said, Hey, look, uh, why don't I start the label back up and, and, you know, we'll, we'll do it. And it'll be a, a short run, but we'll do it right. And it'll be high quality. So how are you, how are you finding the time to relaunch the label? Is, th is this going to be your main hobby? And I ask because the older I get, I'm almost 40 now. It's, it's like there's less and less and less time to do anything. Like right now with everything I'm working on, there's not room for one more thing. I would like it if there was time to maybe start a new band, but I don't have room for even one more thing. What's, what's your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah. I mean, my day to day is insane. I travel a lot for work. You know, I got the chaotic life at home, but you know, the reality is, you know, there's always downtime here and there. And, and this stuff is fun to me, you know, reaching out to and talking to some of the bands and, and the, you know, the members of the bands I haven't spoken to sometimes, you know, some of them 15 years, you know, now mm -hmm. it, it's just been really exciting uh, to make those connections again. And and this is really going back to the the model of the label now. You know, we're we're not going to be an active label, right? Everything's already recorded for the most part. You know, it's a matter of just kind of checking the boxes to make sure things get done. So, and because none of these bands are active now, there's no rush to get anything out, right? So, yes. if it comes out in six months, great. If it comes out in two years, great. You know, if it never comes out, who cares, right? I mean there's really no uh you know uh pressure to to meet a timeline you know and and that was actually the worst thing about running the label when it was at kind of the height and you know everybody was on a timeline they had tours coming up they had release dates coming up and you know it was always fighting the clock to get things out and you know and then get the promotion and the it, these these records that I'm going to be working with they're not going to need the level of you know PR and promo that they once did because it's only really going to go to a, you know, a, a small faction of collectors and fans that, you know, are going to buy the record anyway. Yeah, that's great. No pressure is great. I, I feel so many parallels with how we run this podcast because we started it up and, you know, I'm talking to bands I haven't seen in decades. Uh, I'm talking to friends I haven't talked to in a long time. I'm having conversations with, with friends I never had before. And we decided to make it weekly, which is crazy because, you know, every week we got to have an episode and then we're holding episodes for promotion cycles and, you know, doing several in a week because one of us is doing something. It's a it's a lot of work. I didn't yeah. imagine that it would be this much work. 
I, I, I can't imagine. Podcasts weren't around when I was uh, in the scene. You know, we had, right? we were, yeah, it was all zines, right? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's one of the things that like we, that, that correlation between doing this now is just, it's really just a labor of love. It's something we want to do and something we want to be involved with. But like Keith said, it, there is a time crunch with a lot of this because we are on a trying to produce weekly and we just, this is episode, what is it? 40 Keith, right? Yes. So that means 40 weeks in a row, we have had a consistent hour and a half to two hour show to produce. Yeah. Um, Keith and I both work full-time jobs. Uh, I consult a lot uh, and I have three kids. One of them's under the age of like, she's like not even, she just turned one. So it's like, it's nuts for me too. Cause like, we're just constantly, it seems like we're trying to beat the clock all the time, but at least it's something that we really want to be a part of. So it, it, we can definitely share that same idea of like, we want to do this because it's so much fun, but at the same time, it's like the time crunch is, is, is absolutely killer for us sometimes. It, it's funny. You said labor of love because you know, when I started the label, it, it was for the love of music, right? I mean, it was, I wanted to be working with these bands that I cared so much about and, um, you know, music was everything. And when the label ended, I, I couldn't get away fast enough because it, it, everything gravitated away from music and all about business and money. And, um, you know, when I, when I left, uh, you know, I, I, I walked away in a pretty, uh, uh, quick fashion. <laughs> and um, I, I hated music for a long time. I wanted nothing to do with it. And so this project has actually been kind of a full circle for me to be able to come back and and work with these, work with these artists again and, you know, do it in a way that's really just about the music and about creating a product that is meaningful for them and meaningful for the people that are going to buy it. And I don't expect much money to be made. Uh, I don't expect any money to be made, to be honest. Um, and, you know, for me, it's about kind of creating this legacy that, you know, I can leave behind. That's great. And we have the same thing in mind for this as well. Documenting our scene, making sure all these bands get attention, talking to the people that we love, leaving an a collection of audio recordings that talks about everything. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing. And that's great. And isn't it funny how time can just heal and things change. Like I I've been like that where I'm like, I get out of a band and I'm like, I'm never fucking being in a band again. I can't stand people. And then two years later, it's like, okay, I'm ready to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> what you were saying, like with the legacy though, like that's one of those things that's like really cool is like, so uh, Casey, we had on um, Lee Ving from fear. Uh, oh, wow. And the only reason we had him on is because he was my dad's best friend growing up. Oh, that's funny. And I didn't even really know that until about 10 years ago when uh, he reached out to me trying to find my dad. And I'm like, uh, he's been dead since 1987. And he was like, oh, my God, I, I got to tell you all these stories. You have to hear all this stuff. Have you ever heard the story about how he did this? How he did? And I'm like, no. So we just started communicating on the phone like that. But now it's one of these things that like when I'm older and like my kids want to hear stories about my dad, I can be like, yo, listen to this podcast. This dude tells all these stories about growing up with my dad and his younger brother in Philly. Like it's it's such a nice kind of like just time capsule to be like, this is a moment in time and a relationship that existed. And it's just nice to be able to go back and look at that and be like, here, here's something cool to listen to. 
So uh, let's take it back a little bit. Casey, where did you grow up? Boston area? Yeah, I was, I was born in Boston and uh, grew up in South Boston and went to high school in Quincy. So tell us about your musical history. How did you discover the scene and what kind of bands were you into at the time? So uh, it's it's funny that you were talking about your dad because um, my dad was pretty pivotal in you know kind of my music upbringing. Um, he's a he's a jazz musician, but uh, he paid the bills for you know through the seventies uh, by playing in rock bands, and he was uh, one of the drummers for the Jay Giles band. Oh, get mm. out! He yeah. just recently <laughs> he just recently passed away, didn't he? Uh, you know what? He might have. I don't know. I I, I can't think remember. he did. And, uh, you know, he was, he was friends with, uh, Joey Kramer from Aerosmith and actually, he actually taught Joey Kramer how to play drums. Um, and, uh, you know, ever since I was a little kid, again, you, you don't, you don't know the significance of this, right. When you're, when you're a little kid, right. Um, yeah, he was friends with, uh, Cindy Lauper, you know, and I, they, she came over <laughs> to the house when we were a kid and, wow. um, you know, she just seemed like a crazy lady to me. I, I didn't know who she was. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, because of that, I was exposed to a lot of music, um, you know, at an early age. And I, there's this, my mom has this really funny video of me sitting on Santa Claus's lap when I was five or six years old asking for an ACDC record. But, uh, you know, he, he would always give me music or there would be cassette tapes lying around. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I had like a Ramones tape when I was, you know, 10 or 11 years old. And so, I really started in Boston, you know, in, in the punk scene. In fact, that's, that's where iodine originally started was I was in a really, really shitty punk band. And, uh, we sent our demo to a hundred labels and they all said, no. And so, <laughs> um, I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to start my own label and, uh, you know, put this out. And, uh, the band ended up breaking up and they were so bad and it didn't matter that <laughs> we didn't put it out. But, uh, the label really began um, originally. Like I said originally it was going to be the demo, t- uh, the the band that I was in. We're going to release a seven inch, and um, that didn't happen. And I, I had this realization. I loved music, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I I wish that I could have been in a band. The band I was in, I, I sang for because I couldn't play any instruments, uh, which is really embarrassing because my dad's this like you know world phenomenal. Yeah, i was gonna you know? say phenomenal musician yeah. oh, he's, <laughs> he's like he's seriously like he, he's known throughout the music world as this like phenomenal like you know just really incredible drummer and i i never played he always wanted me to play I, I never took it seriously and so i i couldn't be in a band i i didn't have the talent i didn't have the skill and so the label was really a way for me to be a part of the scene and to contribute something and i think it was like 90 97 or 98 um when i really wanted to start the label going you know i started the uh, the ghosts and the gears uh comp project and it was funny because in the beginning you know i started reaching out to all these bands and uh, i was getting a lot of interest and you know i don't know if you guys heard it before but it had bands like cave in and converge and uh garrison and decision a lot of big uh like hardcore and emo bands um jerome's dream Yes. Uh, from the early days. And I mean, at the time, um, you know, I was actually talking to Jerome's dream the other day and I was uh, laughing because I, I think I was sitting in my mom's living room on AOL instant messenger 
And, you know, uh, I think it was Eric. And he's like, oh, I'm in a band. Can I be on your comp? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I, I don't even think they had played shows yet. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, by by chance or by luck, all those bands on that comp ended up becoming, you know, pretty, you know, big bands in the scene. Um, Let me ask a question. Did you just randomly reach out to them and say, I'm putting together this comp. Do you want to be on it? Oh yeah. I was a hustler, man. I'd go to shows and as soon as the show was over, I'd go up to the band and say, Hey, I'm starting a label. Uh, I got this compilation. Do you want to be on it? And, uh, you know, it, it was funny. Everyone was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, wow. And it, once I got Converge, uh, I think that kind of was a tipping point and, you know, a lot of other bands wanted to be on it because of them. So you've got Cave In on this thing, Converge. You know, a lot of those bands, they were huge bands to me when I was 17 years old. But now that I'm almost 40, I realize at that time, yes, they were big in the scene, but they were still new, struggling bands playing a lot of the same gigs that, you know, like our friends' bands were playing. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I I toured with Converge for years, and, you know, they they were probably the biggest you know, I mean, they still are, but at the time, you know, as far as the, the, the hardcore, you know, metal scene, you know, they were the biggest thing and they all had second jobs. I mean, they couldn't live off the band, right. um, you know, and they, they would tour six to nine months and come back and, and, you know, they all had their side hustle and, uh, I can't, I don't know if they're all, I think they're all still, I mean, J- Jake's running uh, death wish and, uh, you know, Kurt's got his, uh, uh, studio going full time. So yeah, I mean, they're all still doing stuff on the side, you know, the band, I think it brings in extra money, but it's hard to live off of, off of music. It's almost impossible unless you're of mainstream artist who's been around for years and years of all the bands that I knew growing up. I only know one, one who lives off the music. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't even think brand new, uh, was able to make a living off the band alone. So it, it's hard. I, I have a lot of respect for artists that put in the effort. Um, but it is a, it is a cutthroat business. And, and I think that's a realization that a lot of bands make, you know, I, I made it as a label guy. Um, but a lot of bands, you know, especially ones that start to get serious, right? Like they're going to make a career out of it. Um, they realize as they move more and more into, you know, out of the the scene side and more into the actual like business, you know, whether or not they go to a major label side, um, you know, it it becomes a business, right? And it becomes about the money and it becomes about all the the mechanics of it. And you start to lose that um uh that that wonderment or whatever that 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 spark that brought you to the scene in the first place. And right, you know, it it was kind of sad because I saw that with a lot of the bands I worked with. You know, they were kind of losing that um that that real love of why they started so you said you toured with converge for many years now let me ask you this yeah even back in the day they were like at the top of the game they always just had this air about them that they were at the top of that metalcore heap going on at the time you must have sensed that too at the time right oh yeah 100 percent i so I was uh I was actually living with the guys from Piebald. Um this is Oh yeah. This is like in 99, 98, 99. So uh, a friend of mine was uh living with so they all lived in one apartment building but they were a couple of the guys Andy was on the second floor and Travis and uh 
Um, the other guys were on the first floor. So I, I lived with Andy mm-hmm. and, uh, the Converge guys lived like right up the street. And at the time they were my favorite band. Like I was a total fanboy. And, yes. uh, I used to go over to Jake's house and I would hang out and play video games and I would just kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> just sit there and just want to talk music all day long. And, uh, does Jake play video games? Uh, I don't know about anymore at the time he did. <laughs> so, or- See, I love that. Yeah, because he doesn't seem like someone that would. And just even the fact that he used to makes me very happy. But please continue. Yeah, I mean, I would go over there and watch movies. Um, he was he was doing graphic design um, most of the day. You know, it, it, that was kind of his side gig at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember what happened, but there was one of the Hellfests that they played. Uh, they didn't have a roadie for. And so, you know, I, I was working this really crappy job at Kinko's Copy Shop. And, uh, you know, Jake was like, all right, you're going to be our roadie. You're coming with us to Hellfest. And, you know, I was like a kid in a candy store, right? <laughs> I, get to yeah. go, I get to go to Hellfest with my favorite band. And, uh, you know, from then on, I started working for them as a roadie. And, uh, do you know, Trey McCarthy, he's, uh, he also runs Death Wish. Um, no. So, yeah, Trey was like a big scene guy, but, you know, he was like me where, you know, he had no musical talent. So his contribution was working with bands and doing like, uh, you know, tour management and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his uh, self-given uh, title was like a super roadie. So he he worked with bands like Bane and uh, Hope Conspiracy and American Nightmare. Uh, I, I, his uh, His resume, you know, every hardcore band of that era oh boy sets fire he did he was their tour manager for a while yeah all those bands alone is like a resume oh yeah totally so you know he he was also managing converge but because he worked with so many other bands uh there were times that converge would go out on tour and you know he couldn't go because he was with boy sets fire or bane or someone like that Mm -hmm. um and so trey actually taught me how to do tour management and so um, then I started working both as a roadie slash tour manager for Converge for a while. Now, let me ask you this. Converge seemed like they'd be a tough band to work with, not because they're mean or anything like that, but they seem like they would be particular. Like you have to be on your game. Is that the case? Uh, yeah. I mean, they were serious musicians. Um, yes. You know, but, uh, you know, I, I was friends with all those guys. So, you know, it, it worked. I mean, you'd be surprised. They were a little bit more laid back about things than you think. And most of them, you know, all of them really, (laughs) the less they had to worry about the business side of things, the better, you know, um, they, they wanted to show up and play. And, you know, that was, that was my job to make sure that they didn't have to worry about whether or not a venue is going to screw them out of, uh, you know, what their cut was or, um, you know, that their, their riders were met or, you know, the, the sound equipment, you know, I remember Jake had a, like a, sp- a specific microphone or a microphone cord. I, I'm taxing my memory here, guys. This is like 20 years ago, but <laughs> you know, I, I remember there was like a specific, I think it was like a monster cable microphone and that was on their rider. And, you know, every show I'd have to make sure they had it. And like, seriously, more than 50% of the time, you know, they had some crappy mic cable and I'd, I'd make the promoter go out to, you know, guitar center and pick up a, uh, you know, the, the cord, because whatever the contract was, you know, if they didn't have it, they were breaking in breach of their contract. And therefore, you know, the band didn't technically didn't have to play. 
Did uh, anyone ever refuse to get the cable or something in the Reiner? The biggest thing I dealt with back then was uh, there were particular promoters that were infamous for. So I don't know if this is like a super boring topic, but you know, for a, a band like Converge, and especially a band like Brand New, you know, as you get bigger and bigger, you know, they they have like their okay, they get paid. $2,000 flat rate for playing the show. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the venue or the promoter, you know, they'll, they'll do a split after they meet their expenses. Right. So, you know, they got to pay the doorman and they got to pay for the electricity and the, whatever the venue cost is, yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, after they hit a certain capacity, you know, whatever money comes in, you know, over their, over their costs, the band gets, you know, yeah, let's say 50% for argument's sake. Um, mm-hmm. And so you'd be playing a show and you could see that it's packed door to door and they tell you that, oh, they didn't meet their cost. Therefore, you're not going to get, you know, whatever the extra, um, you know, pay would be. So I'd often have to stand at the door with a hand clicker and count, you know, roughly how many people walked through the door so that I actually had some, you know, actual evidence that, you know, that they were screwing the band. But usually they knew ahead of time if, you know, they they might have had a reputation for screwing bands in the past, but if, you know, their roadie or their tour manager is standing at the door actually counting heads, then uh, usually they didn't try to pull a fast one. Did, did you ever have to get into it with anyone? Like, no, I know how many people are here. You better pay us now. Yeah, a couple times, but I think I was fortunate that it never like escalated into anything uh, too big. Yeah, you got to keep in mind too. For you know, I managed uh, brand new too, so I, w- I went through this you know again when I worked for them. But uh, yeah, they want these bands to come back, right? I mean, especially you're talking about those bands, right? I mean, like you just said, Converge was you know the height of the metalcore scene and. You know, yes. brand new was, you know, fastly becoming one of the bigger, uh, you know, pop emo bands. And, you know, that's big money, right? I mean, those are sold out shows. If you if you screw them and you're not going to, you know, you know, work with them, they're not going to come back. So, you know, you're you're shooting yourself in the foot. So exactly. Do you want to list names of any uh, shady promoters from back in the day? We could <laughs> we could get it all out in the open right now. <laughs> You know what? I, you know, at fear of uh, someone uh, seeking me out and coming after me, I'll just uh, we'll we'll keep it vague for now. Yeah, uh, that's my policy too. Like I, I, I could, I know people specifically that have stolen things from my friends or other stuff that went down. But these are people that I would not want to be angry at me. If you know what I'm saying. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> let's talk about the beginning. All right, so let's talk more about Iodine Records now. I love when people come on here and tell stories about taking control of things and, and doing shit, like no label will sign you. So you just start, you just decide to start your own label. And I love that because when I was young, I didn't know how to do anything and I was too afraid to do anything. So I just sat around and expected things to happen, but of course they didn't. So you just go out and you're like, no, I'm going to start my own label. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing, but, uh, you know, I slowly figured out it as I, as I trudged through it. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's funny looking back on it now because, um, you know, being older and wiser, if I were to do it again, I would have done it a lot differently, um, in, you know, managed it more like a business. 
Yeah, and, and that's really what caused it to to fail in the end was uh, I couldn't say no to people. You know, I I I wanted to give every band everything they they wanted and or needed um, mm-hmm. you know, to be successful. That kind of brings me to one of the one of the questions I was thinking about is like starting a label like this, uh, like on your own. How do you come up with the capital to be able to press a certain amount of records to? you know, advertise to promote to like, how how do you do, did you have to like go get a small business loan? Did you just save up enough money to do it on your own? Like, how did you go about even starting? Yeah. For me, it was the comp. Um, you know, I started that comp and yeah, like I said, I got lucky, a lot of really good bands that had a, you know, large following at the time wanted to do it. And, you know, when they did it, they knew that it was going to be a project that was going to help jumpstart the label. Um, none of those bands were getting royalties or anything like that. Um, you know, and we pressed, I think a couple of thousand comps, you know, which isn't a huge number, but it brought in enough money that I was able to go out and, you know, sign a few bands and, you know, start the process. But I think that because, I had a lot of connections at the time, you know, through Converge and through some of the other bands that I worked with at the time. And I, I got lucky on another front, which is uh, I got connected with Revelation Records. Mm. And um, and I don't know if you guys ever talked about or know Vic Simba from Revelation. Uh, she also ran Simba Records. They did like an Elliott record and, you know, a few other, uh, you know, uh, classic emo stuff. But um Vic and I became really good friends and she did all the distribution stuff at revelation. And, you know, she knew how hard I worked and she knew how much passion I had for the label. And so she was able to get me uh, an exclusive distribution deal through revelation. And this was like early on. I mean, I, I only had, I think I had the ghost in the gears comp and the uh, blue green heart uh, seven inch, which was uh Kurt Ballou from Converge's side project at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Vic was like, yeah, we'll, we'll take you on as a label. And they gave me a pretty amazing deal where they actually paid for all my pressing and, and distribution fees. Oh um, the downside was they took a larger percentage of my sales, but I didn't need the capital to, you know, come up with, you know, 10 grand to press, you know, X number of CDs to get them out there. Um, and so that's kind of really what got thing, you know, the snowball going, you know, the, the next few projects, you know, they, they just continued to have a little bit more and a little bit more success. Well, that's great. That's good insight into how to get these things going. You know, it's just taking one step and connections really help too. Like for this podcast, when we started this thing, I didn't know anything about recording editing audio i knew nothing but i had some connections so i got a couple friends and i'm like let's do this thing and i just figured out the rest as i went along is that kind of what you did too like i mean did you know about distribution and percentages and all this stuff or were you just figuring it out as you moved i'm telling you man i i knew nothing i knew (laughs) i mean i was a high school dropout i mean i I later (laughs) finished and went back to college and everything but um i didn't know what i was doing but you know, I knew a lot of people in the scene. And so I remember having lengthy conversations with like Rama Mayo from, um, you know, Big Wheel Recreation and uh, Vic from Revelation and uh, Steve from Equal Vision, you know, all these guys that I, 
I just knew from touring and, you know, working with some of the bands that I worked with and they were all super supportive and, you know, they, they helped me figure out what I needed to know. Nowadays, I, I don't know how, I don't know how even labels run nowadays. I, people don't buy physical records anymore. And, um, you know, streaming doesn't create the, the, the revenue that, um, you know, a record might. So I, if someone were to start a label now, I don't even know how they would go about doing it, to be honest. Um, you know, and when iodine ended, the industry was, was changing so rapidly. And, you know, that was one of the things that helped, you know, caused us to, to fail was, uh, you know, I wasn't keeping up with, uh, you know, the way the industry was going. I think one of the things that I always, I don't have a background in, in finance or business, but every time somebody was like, like locally was like, Hey, I'm starting a label in my head. I'm going, how (laughs) I, I remember getting one of those like little, like, um, like flyers from somewhere and it had, um, the prices to be able to, you know, press a seven inch to press a full LP. And I was like, this is in, I don't, we couldn't press more than like it, just thinking about like all the, the band I was in, like all of our money together, we might be able to press 250 copies. Oh yeah. It's, it's a huge, it's a huge risk that you undertake and there's no guarantee you're going to sell them. You know, it's, uh, it, it's a tough business. And even for a band, even if you do a self issued record, um, you know, you're, you're taking a gamble. It, it really is one of those things that like I like uh, I actually worked um, with a guy. He was a fellow math teacher of my like at my work and uh, he uh, put out the first record for Gaslight Anthem. Oh, yeah, yeah. He put out one of their first records. And uh, I remember saying to him, I'm like, you yeah, know, so uh, that that record sold really well. And then like when the band got bigger, there was, you know, like what kind of like what you're doing, like, hey, there's now a, a, an increased demand for this. And he was really smart with like math, like he was just a mathematics person. Um, but he also had the business acumen to be like, hey, I, I know how to work the social kind of part of this of like making the right inroads talking to the right people networking he's like but the other thing is is that like sometimes you just roll the dice and it fucking comes up awesome and you just yeah like i lucky seven and he's like yeah. and then sometimes you do it and it's fucking snake eyes man and you yeah. you you sit on a couple thousand records yeah if i could tell you how many pallets of cds we destroyed um over the years <laughs> it, it it was heartbreaking um but uh you know part of it you know i i had to just kind of move on from it you know and just kind of accept that that's the way it was hey casey i have a question for you for the iodine relaunch are you going to do cassettes <laughs> <laughs> keith, I don't know why I keith knows exactly where uh, he's going with it. <laughs> yeah so um it, it it's so funny because when iodine was at its height you know, we were very reluctant to do vinyl at the time because literally nobody was buying vinyl. Um, yeah, I, we did the brand new record on vinyl, and I remember being on tour with them and literally having to answer a hundred times a night uh, whether or not the that was a wall calendar. Um, and <laughs> I had to explain to them, no, it's it's a vinyl record, and uh, the kids were just confused. Um, wow, vinyl didn't sell back then, so you know it was like 
you know, CDs and CDEPs were what was in. If anyone had asked me at the time if tapes would ever make a comeback, I, I would have probably laughed in your face, but maybe. Um, you know, we've got, I say we right now, it's just me. Um, but, uh, you know, there's probably about eight or nine projects on the table and tapes have come up uh, a few times. If we did them, they would be, you know, highly, highly limited. I'm, I'm talking like 25 to 50 total per okay. per release. Now, I ask because cassettes annoy me. I'm annoyed that they're back. <laughs> I'm annoyed that they're a thing again. I'm annoyed that bands do them. And look, bands tell me that they sell, that they're cheap to make. So I get it. It's the new vinyl. But I'm annoyed. I have absolutely no way to play a cassette now if i had to find a way to play a cd i could do it but i got nothing as far as cassette players go where do you stand on cassettes i could tell you i mean to me it doesn't matter right i mean whatever i i put out it's it's going to be something that either the band wants or a a fan wants somewhere right so yes you know i'm not going to do any cassette only releases uh I, i have no interest um i i like the timelessness of vinyl i've always loved vinyl yes um but if there's a kid out there that's like, hey, I'm, I've been dying to have this particular record on a cassette or uh, like we're going to be working with uh, that record store limited to one. I know they're big into cassettes. Hey, it, you know, if we put a, a, a dozen out there and there's a couple of kids that think it's cool, you know, that that's cool to me. I mean, it, it, it's not my role to tell people what they should and shouldn't be into. Um, and, you know, I. I'm always just happy that people want to buy whatever, you know, music I'm producing. You know, you're a better man than I, because I would sync the label before I put out any cassettes. <laughs> I would go down with the ship. <laughs> I always, Keith, Keith, do you remember I sent you a text like a couple months ago? And I was like, who the fuck has a tape player? And you were yeah. like, what? And I was like, who? I, I, I saw like, it was like a wave of like 10 different bands were like, check out our new cassette. I'm like, how do you buy a cassette? Can you buy a cassette player still? I know like Target has like record players and stuff like that, but like I, I you'd have to go buy like a used car, like <laughs> I got an 87 Ford Tempo. Why? Cause I can fucking listen to like, my fucking tapes in it. Like, I don't know what else you're going to do with that. Like I, I, just, I, I have an idea. A band could put out a limited edition 87 Honda Civic. So you could listen to their cassette. <laughs> in the car <laughs> that was like i remember one time i saw creation is crucifixion and they tried to sell me a disc and i was like yeah 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 no i'll, I'll buy the cd and he's like no 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 it's like a, a three and a half inch floppy and i was like wait like a hard like a hard disc and he's like yeah and i'm like nah i'm good <laughs> like i don't i don't i'm not buying this he's like yeah but it has all the details that it was also they that was the same time i bought child as audience and it was like it had all the details. Like, I still have it upstairs with the schematics on how to uh, reprogram all the Game Boy games. So that yeah, you... we need to take a look at that. Oh, dude, it's so weird. Yeah, <laughs> fucking weird, dudes. So we're talking about Iodine Records. Oh, now Iodine Records also did a yearly fest, right? Iodine Fest. We did, yeah. Um... Now let's let's talk about that. Putting on a fest. How how. I mean, is there just a lot of people involved? Is it is it crazy? Is is I mean, give us some of the details. Oh, it was a, it was an absolutely miserable experience, um, <laughs> and and it only got more miserable as the years went on. But uh, you know, it, those were some of the highlights of you know my my time in the scene. 
and and it's really cool you know nowadays i'll i'll have people send me an email or or a message and you know they'll just say hey you know i want you to know that that show was you know the most important show i ever went to and they they you know give me some anecdotal story about you know they made out with some girl outside or uh, who knows but um <laughs> <laughs> it um it was a lot of work uh you know they it's almost impossible to make a fest like that and actually, you know, make enough money to, to pay everyone adequately. And, um, but for me, it was like, it was a way to, you know, bring all the bands together that I was working with at the time. Um, and, you know, being, you know, a part of the scene that I was, I, I knew a lot of bands from touring. And so I would always try to get, um, you know, other bands that I, I became friends with to come out and play. And, you know, it, it was just a huge party. And it, uh, Ben Sisto, who did a lot of the uh, the shows at the time, he helped me two years in a row. And, uh, you know, he was you know, critical in, in making those things happen. Here, let me ask you a question. How do you tell people no? I'm sure there were a lot of bands who wanted to get on this thing or on the label. How do you tell people no? I, I haven't had to explicitly do it yet uh with the podcast thankfully i'm sure it'll come up at some point how do you handle situations like that yeah for shows um it happened a lot more with shows than it did with bands that actually wanted to be on the label but i I got a funny story about that that I'll, i'll tell you in a second um yes you know for shows there were hurt feelings for sure you know i i think that i always had good tact in explaining to bands hey look you know I can't help you out this time, but you know, here's why I can't put you on the, on the, on the show. I mean, especially iodine fest, man, like I probably had 200 more bands that were begging me to be on that show, you know, and it was already, I didn't remember, I didn't have a flyer in front of me, but I think there was like 40 something bands that played. Mm-hmm. Um, and one night I think we had four stages going. So, you know, there'd be a band playing in the front of the venue and while they were playing, there was a band setting up in the back of the venue. And so as soon as the first band finished, they, the whole audience would turn around and another band would start playing in the back. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was nuts. But um, I, I can't remember any specific instance where like, you know, someone was so butthurt that they never spoke to me again. Um, but uh, bands who wanted to be on iodine. Yeah. You know, obviously I had a little bit more leverage there. Right. Cause I, I would always have this criteria, like how much are you touring? You know, what kind of fan base do you have and in the early days? It wasn't really like that. Um, you know, the first few bands I worked with, yeah, I was a new label. I didn't really have any, um, I didn't have any leverage on my side. Right. Like I, I didn't have much to offer except helping get the record out. Um, but later as the label developed and we started to build a name for ourselves, a lot of bands were coming to us. And so, you know, I'd really look at, okay, well, how many months did you tour last year? Because I, I'm not going to put ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 into uh, a record, you know, that for production costs, recording, mastering, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and risk not at least making my money back, you know, mm-hmm. forget about profit. Um, so, you know, I'd have that real conversation with some of the bands. And I remember there was a few bands, um, I don't want to say names because I don't want anyone to, you know, have hurt feelings, but I had that conversation with them and they are, they were pretty uh, um, uh, insulted by the fact that I, you know, pretty much said, Hey, look, you're not, you're not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. 
Um, you know, and the bands I worked with, I, I will say they all had an incredible work ethic. And that to me was the most important part. Cause I said, Hey, I'll, I'll take the risk. If you just prove to me that you guys are going to actually get out there and hustle. But notoriously, I did turn down a few bands that, uh, uh, I later regretted for, uh, obvious reasons. Uh, Coheed and Cambria asked me to do a record and I was like, ah, you guys are way too weird. (laughs) 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 I had no interest in working with them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny how, uh, time reveals all, but you missed the ball on that one. for I sure. know, I know. Um, who else? So there were a few other bands that, uh, so Fairweather was on equal vision. Um, but they had reached out to me and asked if I would do all their vinyl and cause I was doing the vinyl for brand new. And so a lot of bands like that in that genre uh, would call me up because they said, hey, you know, he did it for brand new. Maybe they'll do it for us. It's funny, again, because at the time, vinyl just really wasn't selling. Um, I mean, I I literally had those 2000 brand new records sitting on shelves for years. Wow. Um, You know, it wasn't until 15 years later that they're going for $7,000 on eBay. Um, Hold on a second. $7,000? $7,000 for the uh, a white copy on eBay. I think that was the highest price I've seen. Wow. Yeah. You have any of those still? I've got three left, I think. Um, Can I get one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I put a tease up on Instagram uh, last week with a picture of two of them. And uh, my inbox blew up. And uh, I, think, uh, I think I upset some record collectors out there. Did you ever hear, did you ever just hear a band and you're like, these guys are on the label or did they have to meet the criteria? One band. Uh, Who? Gregor Samsa. They played a show that I booked. I had never heard of them before. Um, they were, I think they, all they had at the time was a demo, um, but they were touring with, it was either Engine Down or Mira. Um, I can't remember what show it was, but a promoter friend of mine called me up and said, Hey, uh, these guys are, you know, they, they weren't really touring with them, but they were kind of tagging along on shows, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. and so they said, Hey, can you do me a solid and put this band on? And I I don't think I had an opener yet. So I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And uh, it was at the middle East in Cambridge and they started playing. And I, I was just standing there with my jaw on the ground. Um, they were the most beautiful band I'd ever heard. And, uh, that night I was like, I, I want to sign you guys. You have to be on my label. Uh, I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I literally was like, just tell me what you want and I'll, I'll find a way to give it to you. Um, wow. Yeah. And y- till this day, I still feel so lucky to have worked with that band because I, I think that they're, you know, so brilliant. And I, and I hear from a lot of musicians, a lot of the um, other bands I worked with at the time, you know, uh, brand new and, and, uh, uh, even there were wires like th- those guys would always be like, Oh my God, you know, Gregor Samsa is the most incredible band I've ever heard. And that band, they should have been massive, you know? And I think that when they left iodine, they, they shopped around and they went to another small label. And uh, I, I don't think that they were in the right place because, you know, they, they should have really been, you know, so, huge, you know, like Radiohead huge in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There, there's so many, incredible bands out there who just got a bad luck of the draw or had the wrong manager or had mismanagement from their label and then they're just done yeah that's it yeah it happens all the time we talk to so many bands that it happens to 
on this podcast. Their genre was, you know, like the shoegazy, um, you know, atmospheric type stuff, kind of like Godspeed, You Black Emperor, or uh, from Iceland, um, Seeger Row. Seeger Row. Yeah. You know, and, and they should have been touring with bands like that. But it's funny, the bands that ended up taking them on tour were like ISIS and, um, <laughs> and, and Neurosis, right? So they're like opening these shows for these like, you know, doom metal bands. I I went to go see them in New York with ISIS and, you know, they're very soft, you know, and, and very atmospheric and, and those bands love them, but it was hard for them to play because like, you know, you, everyone in the audience has to be dead silent, you know, during the show. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, they ended up getting like a cult like following, but like you were saying, like, it just, they, they never really landed in the right place. Um, And, you know, never got the, the, the true attention that they deserved. I didn't even know brand new was going to be as big as they were. Um, you know, it just, yeah, they were a band that was looking for a little bit of help and, um, you know, they were good guys and I, I did them a favor and, um, I mean, they grew on me over the years, but, um, you know, in the early days, I, I thought they were way too, uh, poppy for, for my taste. They definitely were for me. They, I had that one song on the radio, and I, I, people really liked them, but I was like, uh, I, th- they were good songwriters. I mean, and they are good songwriters. Um, don't get me wrong, but I, I wasn't really into that really, uh, poppy emo sound. Um, and you know, if you listen to a lot of our bands, you know, none of the iodine bands for the most part fit neatly into any, you know, specific genre. Um, Right. You know, and the brand new record came about, um, there was this, uh, guy from Boston, uh, Matt, and he was trying to start a label and, um, I think his band played with brand new in Long Island and, you know, he had worked out some deal that he was going to put out a record for him. And this is before brand new had signed to, um, to, uh, triple crown. And so, you know, his, his label idea kind of fell through the cracks and, you know, he reached out to me and said, Hey, you should really check out this band. They got a big following in New York. Um, and so I got in touch with them and, you know, they, they really wanted, uh, just some extra help getting, you know, getting attention and getting shows. And so one of the bands that was on iodine orange Island, um, they kind of took brand new under their wing and, you know, they were touring around together and, you know, orange Island was headlining over brand new at the time. Um, and orange Island had actually convinced me like, Hey, you got to put out this record. You know, these guys, you know, they're hard workers, they're talented. And so, and as I got to know them, I liked them more and more. So I, you know, I was like, all right, you know, let's do this. And, you know, we put the record out and, um, you know, they, they had signed a triple crown and, you know, the record was doing moderately well. And, you know, like I said, years later, you know, they, they just continue to grow and evolve. How long did you tour with them? So, um, I toured with them for two years. Um, they, it's actually kind of, it was a similar story to converge. I was running the label full time. Um, and Brian, the drummer, uh, he called me, he was in California. They were on tour with the movie life and, uh, can't remember who else was on that tour movie life was headlining and they had some blowout with their tour manager and they fired him on the spot. And, uh, Brian called me up. He said, Hey, uh, can you fly to orange County and, and, uh, come work for us. And apparently I didn't have much going on at the time. So I flew out 
I finished that tour and uh, I think I did two or three more tours after that for them. Uh, and it was, it was actually really great. Like I said, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I, did, I hated their music. I, th- in the beginning, their sound just really wasn't my taste. Um, but it was cool because as I was touring with them, I, you know, I remember being in the van and uh, Jesse in the, in the back seat um, with his acoustic guitar uh, writing Deja and Tendu, the, you know, their, their second full length. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could hear the, the, um, the development and I could hear them just kind of refining their sound, you know, even when they were playing live, um, you know, it, it evolved slowly at first. And then, you know, they, they started to hate to take on this entirely new sound and, um, you know, but I, I can't help but think like, I, I, when I think back on those days, I just feel like I was a part of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking about that in the, in, uh, the first segment I've lived with musicians who I heard them write the whole record and then you go out and see it. And it's just like, wow, this, this whole process is unfolding right before my eyes. I wanted to check out that last record because the record cover is really neat. There's like a girl jumping out of a window. It's oh. like, she's like jumping super far. I, and I'm like, oh man, that must've hurt when she like <laughs> land, landed on the car. Yeah. I mean, they, they really evolved um, as artists. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think I recently heard someone refer to them as, you know, the radio head of emo music. They really did develop into something that you, you can't put neatly into a box. And they're one of those bands that I, I think that their following and their fan base, you know, is, is well-deserved. Um, and, you know, they, they're just really talented writers. And Yeah, so, well, here's the burning question. Now, I know Jesse Lacey had some problems during the last brand new tour. There were some allegations from several women. I think they ended the tour early. How do you process all that? Because you you have a, a record or a few of records of theirs on your label. Any trepidation in re-releasing those? Or did you have to sort out anything like getting the, the label reignition going? Um, well, we didn't retain any of the rights of those songs. Those all uh, went to Triple Crown. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as far as, you know, with the label management side, no. Um, I think that, I, I really can't speak to anything specific. Um, I think Jesse made a statement um, and I would kind of defer people to that. I can say that I was really good friends with all those guys. Um, and I never felt that any of them were you know, inappropriate or I, I don't know. I, I, I think they all had strong character and, and were good people. And um. Again, I, I can't speak to whether or not those allegations are, are true or, or um, you know, or what the, the background is, but I, I never saw it when I worked with them. Right. And o- only the people involved know. And I do remember reading that statement and it was a good statement because, you know, he took accountability for things and explained what was going on. And I think that's the right approach. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that that's exactly right. Yeah. So talking more about Iodine Records, it was purchased in 2001. Now, did you stay on as a partner running it during that time? Uh, It wasn't purchased. Um, So we were facing some financial issues. And I mean, at the time I was running the label, I had a few people working for me. 
and um, we were having a hard time making ends meet. And so Ruben uh, was in a band called uh, the National Blue. He approached me and offered to uh, buy half the label. And I don't remember what the the sticker price was at the time, but uh, he came on and said, hey, I've got some money. Um, I I think what you're doing is important. And I think a lot of people had respect for the label because we weren't, I don't know, we weren't like this cookie cutter label. Like the, the stuff we were putting out was was unique and it was interesting. And, it, you know, I, I think it was important for the time. And so, you know, he said, hey, I'll I'll buy into it. I'll be, you know, a financial backer um, as long as you put out the, my band's record. So, you know, we talked for a few months and he came on. I think I gave him a 49% share. I, I retained a 51% share. And, and that was more for, I wanted to make sure that any artistic direction that the label took, that I kind of had the... Uh, um, you had the final say in it. The final say, yeah. yeah. So, I mean... And it never really came to that. I mean, it was usually we agreed on just about every band that we worked with. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think the only things that, you know, we would have uh, <laughs> intense discussions over was, you know, how to spend money and stuff like that. So I, but he, of course. Was, he was a good partner and, um, you know, he, he was with me until the very end, you know, when, when the label went under. So what happened? How did it all end? Uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a lot of things. Um, one, you know, I don't think I had the, the training in the background in running a, a big business, um, and really the knowledge of, you know, how to, how to deal with things. Right. So, and I, we kind of covered this earlier. I, I really had a hard time saying no to bands. Right. So, uh, a band would come to me and say, Hey, we're going on tour. We don't have any money. Can you, you know, front us money for t-shirts, you know, and I'd write a check for a thousand dollars and, you know, have them get their t-shirts printed up. And sometimes they'd come back and be able to pay me back. But I mean, you guys were in bands, you know how it is. You go on tour. I mean, you're, you're paying for hotels and gas money and food and, and yada, yada, yada. It doesn't matter how much you get paid at a show. You know, you can eat through that money pretty darn quickly. And so a lot of the money I was fronting to bands, they, they weren't able to pay me back. Um, you know, if you, if you ask Vic, uh, from Simba, she says that I was greedy. Um, I, I really wanted iodine to be a, a big player in the scene. Uh, I mm -hmm. wanted it to be a label that, you know, was, uh, you know, kind of at that same level as like a Jade tree or an equal vision. Um, you know, and I wanted to be, you know, kind of known as, a, you know, having all these bands under the umbrella and um, and consistently putting out good quality records. Well, you know, I was putting too much out too fast. Um, in the last year, um, I think we put out eight releases in one year. Um, you know, and if you think about it, you know, recording costs, uh, you know, all the, the mastering and everything and the production you know, we had thousands and thousands of units produced for all these bands and, um, you know, the bills came and we weren't moving units fast enough to be able to pay the bills. And so we ended up in this situation where we're like borrowing money from one place to pay off some debt collector or, um, and it, 
the financial side just started snowballing really fast. Um, the other big thing was, you know, the industry was changing. Um, you know, this is 2003 into 2004. Uh, Napster was, you know, new and taking off. And man, I remember uh, I put out a Thera Wires record, the second full length. And I was talking to someone. I was like, oh, yeah, you're going to go pick it up. And like, oh, I just downloaded it off Napster. <laughs> and I, like my heart, my, my heart sank, you know, I was like, Jesus, you know, like that's, I, I can't even, I don't remember how much money I put in that record, but it was a lot, you know, and. That's funny to hear that from the perspective of someone actually running the label. <laughs> yeah. You know, and again, I wasn't a big money guy. Like I wasn't looking to cash in on this. I was just looking to, to break even, um, or at least be able to just keep things going. And yeah. And during the heyday of Napster, I would say from the year 2000 until shit, I don't know, 2010, I barely bought any music because there was Napster. There was other sites like that where you could download music. And then there was the wonderful days of where you could just type a album name into Google and you would get the media fire and the rapid share links. So, and I didn't have money. So it was like, I can not listen to anything or I can download it and then go see the band when I know I'm justifying it. It was wrong. I pay for things now. I pay for streaming sites. I do it. But I mean, that was, that was the landscape at the time. Yeah. You know, it's hard for me to even say it was wrong. I just think that for the industry, you know, it was changing so quickly. Um, yes. You know, and, and a major label might have the assets to be able to, you know, kind of break through that and, um, you know, essentially have to create a new business model, right? Okay. This is what's happening. Um, you know, how are we going to survive as a business? Well, for the indie labels, I mean, I'm going to be hard pressed to remember all the names of them, but there were a lot of labels at that time about the same size as iodine, some bigger, some smaller, and they all started tanking. Uh, yes. Ferret records was one eyeball records. I mean, eyeball put out, you know, the, my chemical romance record and, um, you know, all, all these labels that were putting out really good quality records for bands that had large followings. Um, but, we, you know, for an indie label, we couldn't keep up with the, the changing landscape. Um, and so we're selling fewer records. Um, even though, I mean, at the time, all of our bands had big followings, but you know, we just weren't, we weren't bringing in any money. I I just hit this point where, you know, it, it wasn't fun anymore. Every day we'd come in and we'd sit down and just crunch numbers and, not once were we talking about, you know, the, you know, in the beginning it was a blast, right? You go on to shows. It was fun. You're hanging out with bands, you know, you're getting these records out, you know, you, you open a box and you pull out that, that fresh new record that you just pressed. And it was, you know, this really amazing feeling. And in the end it was, it was just all spreadsheets and <laughs> I, I was just burnt out. And so I was like, fuck it. I, I got to walk away. Um, you know, I was facing some, pretty serious depression, anxiety. And, um, and I let a lot of the bands down. Um, and, uh, you know, for a long time that, that really weighed on me. And there were a lot of people that believed in the label and, you know, had a lot of, you know, a lot invested in us. And, um, you know, when we, we shut our doors, it left a lot of bands like scratching their heads on what they were going to do next. Um, 
you know, I think uh, Smoke or Fire, they, you know, they were out on tour with Avail or something. And, you know, I sent the email out saying, hey, you know, as of today, the label's done. And, um, you know, they, they, they were pretty uh, hurt by that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think, you know, again, as time goes on, people look back and they understand. And, you know, uh, I'm friends with all the bands I've worked with back then. And, um, you know, again, in retrospect and, you know, being able to look at it through, uh, you know, a different view, they understand, hey, you know, it was, <laughs> it was the only logical thing to do at the time. You know, it's, I think it's the right decision. I've been in, I, I mean, I've never run a label, obviously, but I've been in bands and, you know, it gets to a point where it's not fun anymore and people are arguing and it's not fun anymore. So that's probably when it's time to hang it up or, or really change some things. And with a label, yeah, there's a lot of bands involved. There's a lot of money involved. And if, if you don't, if you can't sustain it, you can't sustain it. That's it because you don't want to end up like a, let me think of a label. All right, I won't be obvious. It starts with a T and ends with a rust kill. <laughs> you know, you don't want to end up like robbing Peter to pay Paul or have a list of 15 bands saying that you never paid them or a bunch of uh, crazy stuff like that going on. So I think yeah. once it's done, it's done. Yeah, you know, and, and that's when I pulled the plug, you know, we were getting into that that arena of, you know, where are we going to find the money and how can we, you know, <laughs> squeeze it out of whatever we can. And it, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I, I cared too much about the bands and, and what I was doing to, to do that. And I remember I wrote the email. It was one of the, you know, it was very cathartic. Right. So, you know, I, I'm telling everybody that I'm ending the label and I kind of gave kind of a list of reasons why. And I want to say 90% of the people that I sent that to, you know, were supportive. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last 10% took a lot of them some time to really understand what happened and why. So, all right. So we're relaunching the label. Now, what, what, like how, what, what are, are the masters sitting somewhere? Like what, what is the first step? And do you have a release in mind to be the first re-release? Yes. Yeah, so, um, as far as the process goes, it, it really depends on the record and the the time that it was recorded. Um, w- the first project that we've got on the table, um, it was a process tracking down the masters and the tapes and all that stuff. Um, in fact, one of the tracks I don't even think we were able to find, and we're trying to pull it off of a uh, off of a vinyl record. <laughs> so, um, you know, and. You know, we got uh, Alan uh, Duch's uh, uh, mastering that. And so, yeah, I think he's going to do good work with it. But it's kind of fun. It's a little bit of a mystery hunt, right? You got to track everything down, find, you know, original artwork and stuff. You know, I'm pulling, uh, I've got some floppy disks and stuff with some artwork that I've been, you know, trying to get through. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> or no, they're not floppy disks. They're uh, zip disks. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh <clears throat> You know, and like I said, everything that we're going to be doing is going to be fairly small scale. We are going to go through the process of remastering and making sure everything sounds really good, you know, but each release we're looking at 500 to a thousand tops, one press and done. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to have sustained releases. We're not going to do represses after the fact, you know, it's really about getting stuff out there, you know, doing it once and then moving on to the next project. 
Um, right now, the first project um, we're looking at uh, April. I think we're going to try to shoot for record store day. So April 17th. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a project with their wires. And oh, nice. uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say what it is quite yet because um, we haven't made the uh, official announcement, but um I think that uh, if people poke around on the Instagram page, uh, you know, and they're they're good at sleuthing, they can figure out um, you know, what stuff we have uh, in line. So, are there going to be some band reunions because of the renewed interest in these releases? <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, I can say that a few of the bands that I've been talking to um, are open to the idea, um, and it's. Uh, it's hard. I mean, everyone's got, you know, lives that they're living. Uh, most people have moved all over the country for various reasons. And, you know, they got families. Some of them haven't played in 10, 15, 20 years. Well, wow. um, so it, it's not a matter of like, oh, yeah, we'll do a reunion. We'll pick up where we left off. I mean, it's it's a process of like, all right, well, you know, I haven't picked up my guitar in 10 years and do I even know how to play anymore? Right. Um, there, there's also the whole thing of there not being a music industry anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be fun and it would be nice. Um, I, I don't know that anyone should hold their breaths uh, for certain reunions, but I think that if we can do it and we can time it with a, a release, I think that would be a blast. And, um, you know, it's a, uh, this this whole project is really kind of you know it'll it'll unfold as it unfolds and you know i i'm letting the bands kind of drive it you know they're they're telling me what they want to do and and i'm just helping them realize it that's great it's almost like a uh casey it's almost like an amends you said you felt so bad having to shut the label down and bands are out on tour it's like we're now we're restarting this thing and it's almost like a chance to do it over again yeah, I think it's come full circle. I over the years, um, oh god, this, so the label went under in two thousand four. So what, sixteen, almost seventeen years since the label ended. I don't think a week's gone by that I haven't thought about how much I hated the way things ended. You know, and I, I've often thought about, hey, you know, if I had done things this way or that way, I could have kept it going. I've always wanted to do something else with it. I think that in a way it's like, yeah, it's full circle, but at the same time, it's like a type of closure. Right. So, I mean, I don't think I'm going to be doing this, you know, forever. Right. I'm only going to be working with bands that broke up 15 years ago and there's only, (laughs) there's only so much I can do. Um, But, you know, if I put out one or two records a year and and people are excited about it, that, that, that's going to be a lot of fun. That's awesome. And here's a good question. Is there any band on the label that you wouldn't work with again. That I wouldn't work with again. No, I, I I would work with all of them again. I mean, the only reason I wouldn't work with you know any particular band is because I, I I just don't think that. I mean, I'll use the National Blue as an example. They were they were a talented band. They were great, but there's probably ten people in the world that you know, still listen to them. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think it would be uh, not a, a good use of my time. Um, you know, and if they wanted to do something, hey, you know, that I, I'd put it on them. But, um, you know, there were some bands on iodine that were a little bit more obscure. And and 
you know, I, my, my motivations for a label, I, I, like, I think I said this earlier, but I didn't really want a cookie cutter label. Um, my, my biggest influences were Jade tree discord and sub pop, mm-hmm. you know, and if you think about any of those three labels, um, you know, you, none of them have a sound, right? Like you, you don't think, you know, discord. Yeah. I mean the DC sound, but the, the variety of music they put out was so vast, you know, um, same thing with sub pop and, and, and J tree as well. You know, you'd, you'd have hardcore bands and, and punk bands and, and super, you know, indie bands. And, and, and that's what I wanted. I wanted iodine to be this label that, um, it was kind of like a, a, a curation of, you know, different styles of music that, um, were unique and, and new and interesting. Um, and so, you know, a few of the records that we did, um, I think they were great releases, but, you know, I don't think they really ever developed a huge fan base. Right. Yeah. And that's the, that's the approach we take with this thing too. There's a lot of bands out there that I like, but that I don't necessarily think would be good for the podcast. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It has to, it has to align with what you like versus what you think people want to hear versus what people will listen to. Yeah. So I have an idea. Are you ready for this? Yeah. All right. Iodine Fest. 2022 (laughs) yeah uh if you book it i'll show up um (laughs) all right can i use the name right you gotta run the uh the um the band list by me first but uh maybe okay um yeah i mean there's been i can't remember there's been so many times uh people have asked me hey you know would you ever do a iodine fest uh i guess it's not really a reunion but like an anniversary show um yeah you know, but the thing is, is it, it, and I don't want to sound like super old dude jaded, but you know, I wouldn't want new bands to play. Um, you know, I'd, I'd really want, and that was the thing about Iodine Fest is, you know, every band that played, I, I knew through, you know, working through the label or booking shows or being on tour. And, um, and so it was really like a showcase of, you know, all these bands that I did work with, um, so, you know, it would require uh, quite a number of reunions in order to make that happen. So where are you at musically these days? What are you listening to? You know, uh, jazz. Um, <laughs> I listen to a lot of jazz. <laughs> I don't listen to much, uh, you know, music from back then. I mean, I still like it and I'll put it on. Um, but uh, yeah. Honestly, like on rotation, you know, I've got all the classic jazz records, you know, Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and, and Miles Davis and you know all that stuff. And do you like Dexter Gordon? Yeah, yeah, I do. He's awesome. You know, it's uh, I, I'm a lot older and a lot more mellow. And uh, at the end of a hard day of work, I like to sip whiskey and uh, put on a, an old jazz record and just relax. Yeah, I'm with you. I I really. You know, I'm just getting more and, and more into more chill stuff. Hardcore. I still listen to a good amount of heavy stuff, but it has its time and place. Plus, I'm usually with my girlfriend and her kid. It, you can't, like, make dinner and listen to Vane. You know what I mean? That It, it wouldn't go over very well. Yeah. So I, I go for the softer stuff. Yeah, and I love putting on old stuff every once in a while. And, you know, I, a lot of nostalgia for it. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, there. I think... Uh, some of the more recent records I bought that were more on the indie scale were um, the Phoebe Bridgers record, 
Yeah, but I, I'm just, I haven't really bought much. Uh, I, I can't remember the last indie record I bought. It was probably Orville Peck, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm get, I've gotten really into collecting old jazz records. And it, it's funny because, again, my dad being a jazz musician, you know, I grew up around that as well. And, you know, I, I feel like as you age, your, your tastes refine. What's the worst job you've ever had? And why was it the worst job ever? worst job i ever had um well I, you know it's funny uh when the label ended um uh i became a park ranger and uh the first job i had i i literally had to shovel shit um from an outhouse in the in the forest and that was uh that was fun oh my God. <laughs> wow <laughs> but but there was something like uh you know uh appealing to that lifestyle right you know just going back to the land yeah um the worst job i ever had i think was uh for a period of time before i was working for the label full-time um i was working at newberry comics at the warehouse and um uh, that job was just it was terrible i mean it was like backbreaking labor um, I remember there was like the old school punch clock on the wall, you know, and, yeah. and there was literally a form in there that would like, you know, watch as everyone came in. And if you were a minute late, you'd get yelled at. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was terrible. You know, and then like they blow the whistle at lunch and everyone I was just going to say they had a steam whistle. Yeah, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a steam <laughs> whistle, but like there was literally a bell that would go off at lunch and there was like a food truck. It wasn't a food truck. It was one of those like old school, you know, uh, uh, deli trucks that would pull up outside and everyone roll out and buy their ham sandwich and, oh, yeah. and get exactly 30 minutes and everyone would file back in. And, um, I mean, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, and it, it was cool. I mean, there was a lot of cool people that worked there. I mean, a lot of guys from bands, um, you know, some of the bigger bands at the time too. And, uh, you know, it was kind of cool to make those connections, but man, I, I hated that job. In fact, when I finally went back to college um, and get my degree, that was my motivation. Cause uh, you know, when I, when the label ended, I was like, I, I'm never going back to that type of labor again. Here's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to follow iodine recordings on Instagram, right? Yep. Now, do you have presence on any other social media platforms? Uh, currently I'm working on getting a website up. Um, you know, I, I tell people go to, um, uh, Spotify and, you know, listen to our records. I'm in the process of digitizing a bunch of old stuff, um, that will likely never be reissued, but it's not available, um, you know, anywhere yet. So, um, in the next three to six months, you should see more and more stuff, um, kind of trickling in out there. Excellent. And there is a website, but it's, uh, it looks like, it was made. Uh, what was that? Angel Fire or uh, uh, GeoCities? Uh, it's 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 pretty terrible. It's iodinerecords.com. Apparently, someone uh, decided to buy iodine recordings and uh, hold out for some money. But um, jokes on them. Okay. So, uh, yeah, iodinerecords.com. Um, yeah, right now it's more of a placeholder, but um, it, it'll have all the links to all the social media stuff. That's great. So follow Iodine Recordings on Instagram. Check out the website. Check out the bands. So now I have some excellent music to check out. 
Yeah, I can't wait to check out Gregor Samsa. I honestly never heard them, and the way you described it, it's right up my alley. Right? Yeah. Unfortunately, most of their records are not um, on Spotify yet, but uh, I think they've got five records out, and you know, I, I'll check back in with you in a few weeks. But uh, if they don't blow your mind, then uh, I would reevaluate your music taste. Oh, don't worry, don't <laughs> worry about it. YouTube has it. I already checked. Right. I was just going to say, Tommy, I know where you're going to get oh, it. They, I already looked. It's got it. <laughs> and uh, I'm going there, too. So cool. <laughs> well, Casey, we uh, want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We look forward to uh, hearing more from you and the label. And uh, we just want to say thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. I think it's uh, it's great to do this. I, I find it a little amusing that people want to hear uh, you know, 40-something-year-old dude talk about uh, records that he put out 20 years ago. But... Um, <laughs> that's like kind of our whole shtick. So we hope people want to hear it. <laughs> um, no, I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I uh, look forward to hearing this. Awesome. Thanks, Casey. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Casey Iodine. That was great. Yeah, it was really nice. I like getting the backstory on how, because I don't know, like like we said before, you go into a record store and you see fucking 10,000 records and it's like literally people have to pour their life savings into it. They have to scrimp and save and side hustle and do whatever they have to do to get these things out because putting a record out isn't cheap. Like, cause he's like, you do hear him say, he said like, you know, we're not going to put money into this. Like if, you know, you guys aren't going to do the hard work, like we're going to put 10, $20,000 into recording and production. Like shit, like that's a fucking enormous amount of money to invest in something that you potentially might break even on. You might make a little bit of money on, or you might lose all of that money. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always interested in the business side of it as well you know there's there's all the glory is in being in the band and there isn't even really glory in that people imagine this lifestyle of you know fame and fortune and drugs and women but i don't know i didn't experience much of that when i was in bands but i'm interested in the business side of it too there's not there's not as much glory in doing the label you know what i mean yeah unless you're david geffen or something i just keep thinking about when we had Keith Goodwin on and he's and I, he was like keep in mind think about like how we thought about days away we were like dude days away moved to California days away is doing like a fucking huge release like and then you hear him talk about it and he's like yeah shit sucked <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's not what it's cracked up to be you have to deal with the personal conflicts in the band you have to deal with the people that are managing you or people that are in charge of your PR just not doing their job or working harder for other bands than they work for you. Or, you know, like it's just a a very, um, it's so complicated and so complex. And it's like, there's so many moving parts to it to kind of nail down one thing and be like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to make it work. It's like, it's not, it's not that simple. And, you know, Casey seems like he has a good business sense. You know, he, yeah. before he would sign a band, he's asking them how many months this year they toured. Yeah. Me, I would just be like, I know you. Okay, you're good. I guess I'll sign you. Yeah, like, well, people can't, people won't buy a record. They fucking don't know the band. Like, you know, like if, you, if you're out there and you're getting your name out and you're doing the work and you're, you're putting shit out, like, and people are like, wow, you know, like, think about like the, the buzz that was around. I remember, um... I think they had only had one record out, but uh, remember Sun and like the the drone band? 
Yeah. Meadows called me one day and he was like, you got to see this band. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, dude, they like fucking show up with like gigantic amps and just fucking drone this place out. It's fucking heavy. The vibration it's, it's nuts. And it was like this hype around a band that I'm literally like, I, I can't find any of their records, dude. And he's like, yo, you, they're coming to, they're coming to first Unitarian. They're playing the chapel. Go. And I'm like, all right. I bought a ticket. I went with Chuck Moran and Chris Riley. And I remember we got there and we were like, you know, of course, like partying, drinking beers and whatnot. And, you know, it's in the church. So like we go in, we sit in a pew and uh growing opened and i remember being like okay this is uh, like this is like kind of like you know ambient kind of stuff i can get into this and then sun showed up and the smoke machine started and like there was all this like kind of like aura about them like it was just like and it was so loud it literally did vibrate your organs like you you felt like you know when you're at a parade and a marching band goes by that bass drum hits you and it's like it kind of you can kind of feel it in your chest it was that for an hour and 20 minutes. And I remember when I was done, I was like, I'm buying this band shirt. Like I, I, I went and bought like two of their, I went and bought one of their records and I bought a shirt and I was like, this is incredible. Like, and it was just one of these things that I had never really experienced before. And the crazy part was, is like, I think after that, I maybe listened to sun like a dozen times and I was done. I listened to them also because of hype. I saw them. I, oh, by the way, I was supposed to be at that sun show that you just mentioned. I'll give you one guess <laughs> why I was not there. You had to meet a guy about a thing. No, I was with the guy oh. doing the thing, and I got too fucked up and ended up not going to the show. Oh. Same old story. Yeah, well. Sun was hyped a lot in 2006, 7, 8, somewhere around there. Yeah. So I went... I listened to it and I was like, oh, okay, okay. And uh, I went to see them and it was, it's like, oh, they're playing this older record that they never play. And I'm like, okay. It, it was just two guys trading feedback for an hour and a half. And the, the smoke machine was broken. So it was kind of, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. I, I have actually seen, they, there was a couple times I went to go see bands and people were like, this is my favorite band. This is amazing. And then I got there and I was like, eh, okay. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I still like, I, I love the fact that like, you know, uh, <laughs> you were honest about it and I didn't even want to d d go into it, but like, I literally, I think I know, I know that brand new song that was on the radio and that was it. Like I never, I never got into them, but I remember people posting like, this is the out, like the album cover you the described the girl jumping out of that second story window onto the top of the car. Yeah. And they were like, this is album of the year, maybe album of the decade. This thing's incredible. I haven't heard music like this in a very long time. And I was just like, meh. Like, I, <laughs> I don't, like, I, I don't, I, I guess there's like, I, I feel like I've been tricked too many times. Yeah. And, and then I just go, and eh, I don't, I don't, am i gonna put the time and effort into actually listening to this whole album like is and that's i do it intentionally with stuff like where i go look i i know i like this band so i'm gonna sit down and listen to it but there's sometimes where i just i just forget or i just don't maybe i just i'm apathetic about it. i just don't care enough to be like i'm gonna fucking i don't care listen there's a lot of music out there too much to listen to all of it 
Sometimes I hear it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I check it out, sometimes I don't. Taste is extremely subjective, and it's based on, do I have time to listen to this? Will I listen to this? Sometimes something is just too hyped, and I'll never listen to it. There's a lot of factors at play. Yeah, I actually, you know what uh, you recommended that I've been playing repeatedly now is the new Sparta. Yes. The Empty Houses is is the track if you want to start somewhere. That's it, it's like Keith and I were having this conversation. Keith and I <laughs> this is one thing that like I think comes across, but Keith and I talk like almost on a daily basis about stuff yes. and one of the things I said and this is like I, I, there's parts of At the Drive-In that I absolutely adore and I love. Like I love the opening riff from Lopsided. I just love yes. it. I can hear it and I'm like that's a fucking amazing riff. And then I listen to Sparta and I'm like, okay, so Jim wrote all those parts that I love. Like yeah. he wrote those, like he wrote the stuff from Athedra. Like I love the cool, like bendy, weird, angular shit they do. It's cool. It, it adds to the song and it has, a, has its place. But there's also sometimes where I'm like, this is just a really well written and, and thought out riff. Like this is just, it's, it's, it's just, it's planned well. And it's like, when I listen to Sparta, I go, okay, he wrote, f- it, it, this is my guess. He wrote the things from at the drive-in that I love. That's now my conjecture. <laughs> like, yeah. But I'm guessing that too. I liked the more traditional elements. The really weird songs were not my favorite. In Casino Out came out, uh, I, was in, I think I was in high school, and I was really good friends with this kid named Jamin Warren. Uh, he ended up going to Harvard, a really, really smart kid. And... We were at a show one time and he, everybody was like talking about at the drive-in and we were kind of over, we were kind of like eavesdropping on this, these girls conversation behind us. Uh, I think partly because they were just like cute and we were just like trying to like get an in to talk to them. But I remember them saying like, Oh my God, do you listen to the lyrics? They're like so amazing. And he looked at me and he was like, it's nonsense. It's all nonsense. None of it makes sense. Bivouac <laughs> tenure. What the fuck does that mean? It just sounds good. Like it doesn't fucking mean anything. Like yeah. he was like furious about it. I remember just like sitting him, he was like fuming and I was like, no, it's it's okay. And he's like, no, but it's like people assign this value to things that like don't really like they read into it way too much. But it much. sounds good, and that's the whole point. But then it's like all right, I love things that sound good. But then there's also like things that have depth and meaning. Like, I don't know, like go read a James Joyce short story or something like that. Go read some John. Yeah, people are really going to want to read a James <laughs> Joyce story over listening to Ather. Would you stop? Do you know who our audience is? That's true. I'm sorry. Come on. You want to hear something? Yeah, go. All right. I may have to cut this from the YouTube because I don't, it, sometimes they flag it and they want to like take royalties of which we have none. Oh, yeah. You can't get blood from a stone, stupid. <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot. You ready? Yeah. All right. Oh, shit. Sounds it, like Tool, right? It is. Ready? You ready for this? Yes. All right, here we go. <laughs> now, this is Tool I can get behind. I, I, that riff is great, though. Yeah. I think this works really well together. Look, this part is cool. Are you ready for this? (laughs) (laughs) 
Taylor Swift meets Tool. Tooler Swift. Tooler Swift. Ready? Wow. <laughs> That's good, right? That's almost perfect. That's yeah. really good. Dude, there is a... Uh, wait, 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 wait. That's good, man. They're going to flag this. You better not flag. Stop it, YouTube. Nonsense. I love you, but stop that. That was by William Morancy on YouTube. Check it out. It's good. I like it. Yeah, I think it works well together. Wait, I have another YouTube recommendation. I don't, All right, go ahead. I, I don't play violin. However, there's this these two Asian kids called Tuset, T-W-O-S-E-T, and they review people playing violin they review people that like start you know their progress videos um their big focus is like child prodigies and it's really funny to watch because the videos are short they're like 10 to like 12 minutes long but they'll watch like you know like an eight-year-old girl from uh china play violin and she fucking destroys and it's just these two guys that have been playing for literally like you know between the two of them, I think they're both like 28 or 29. Like they've been playing since they were five years old. And like, you know, so they have like 40 years of playing experience between the two of them plus. And like, they just sit there and watch this little girl <laughs> just fucking <laughs> destroy. It's so funny. <laughs> you got to check that out. Yeah. Two set violin. So funny, dude. They're hilarious. So we want to thank Casey Iodine for coming onto the show. We look forward to more from the label. We look forward to the re-releases. We look forward to Iodine Fest 2022. No, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah that, that's just me spitballing. Um, and listen, write us, like us, subscribe to us, listen to us, review us. We need more reviews. We'll read your reviews on the air. We'll read your stories on the air if they're good. And uh, yeah, we want to hear from you. I like the fact that the last episode I had to record in the goddamn front of my minivan. <laughs> that was funny. It was funny. Yeah. I, I sent you that picture and you're like, I'm posting this now. I'm like, he's not going to post that. And two minutes later, of I'm course, like, <laughs> that's dedication, dude. <laughs> We're dedicated to this thing. We certainly are. I like I, I literally was packing all that stuff to go up to my in-laws and I, I counted everything like three times. I'm like, all right, I have the computer. Okay good all right i have the adapter for the mic okay good i have the mic cord i have the pop screen i have the mic pack i have everything like i literally like i was like because if i get up there and i don't have my shit keith is gonna lose his mind and i'm gonna be 150 miles away from home and i'm not gonna be able to do a goddamn thing about it yeah you know what i've realized is that i'm a bit of a terror and i i like i think no one takes me seriously but Romy says i can be scary sometimes not scary like you know, I'm I'm like violent, like violent. Or any, yeah, 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 or anything like that. But she says, like, she just says, I get intense. You do get intense with stuff sometimes. Yeah, I can hear it in your like. I can hear it in your voice sometimes. Like where I'm like, oh no, <laughs> he's mad. Like <laughs> I thought you were like when you when you texted me, uh, my computer crashed. I was like, oh no. Yeah. Okay. All right. Like I was, good. No, you should be happy with that because I I can't get mad at you. No, for my com- my computer crashing. <laughs> no, but if I did, we'd have big problems. But I di- I still have that moment of like, 
I know how much this means to you and I know how much it like it, it, this matters to us, like as our in our friendship of like, this is important. Like we don't get to hang out like, but this is our opportunity to spend time together. And it's like, we want things to go well because we want other people to hear it. It's kind of like, like, honestly, like one of those things, like when we we're talking about just, all right. The guest was saying, like, look, uh, I don't have anything to give back in terms of music, but I can do something for the scene that's contributing. This is my contribution is starting this label. And it's yes. like I feel like I've I've taken so much away from hardcore and gotten so much from the music that we love that if I have an opportunity to give back and do something that helps other people or even – just exposes people to like, I'm so excited for people to hear respire. Like I'm so excited for it because I haven't heard music like that in, in, in forever. Like it, it just, and in the, the two new singles that just came on out on black line, I was so floored because it's just like, they did something with music that I wished other bands had done. Yeah. And they just did it so well. And it's, it, it, it really is like, it's nice to hear that. And it's nice to like, I, I, I don't want to like, you know, get cocky about this, but I looked at the video and it was like, it only had like 1700 views. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> we just interviewed those dudes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like this is going to blow up. And then people are going to be like, Hey, I wonder if anybody's ever talked to them. Yes, they have. We Keith, have Keith and Tommy have, we are on the cutting edge of the scene oh. at all times. <laughs> in my in my mind i still like that when i go to the uh like when i go and look at the instagram account it what does it say the number one music music podcast rated by us yeah yeah (laughs) so it's like letting you know that we're number one but that i also have a sense of humor yeah it is but it's nice man and i I think this is one of those things that like I, i just enjoy doing it so much and i think it's i'm just glad we get to talk to people and especially now that we've talked to somebody from like inside the record industry of like someone that's actually gone through the ideas of like production business promotion uh the the a and r stuff that goes along with recruiting bands and and signing bands and it's like there's so much of that stuff that i I literally am clueless about it was nice to have somebody that when you have them on you can ask them the things that you're like shit i never understood how this works how does this work um and he was gracious enough to be able to explain it to us so it was great exactly so that's it we're out of time we're that's a good place to end casey thank you again for coming on the show thank you everybody for listening and until next time